You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, amen. It's good to see you and good to worship together. So I ask you to please take your Bibles or your device so you can go to Exodus chapter 6. And if you've been with us throughout the book of Exodus, I can catch you up real quick. There, this ongoing battle between Moses and Yahweh together against Egypt and Pharaoh. And finally, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go. It's time. And Moses walks in and says, Yahweh, the Lord said. And Pharaoh responds, praise Yahweh. Let's kumbaya and let the people go. No, Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I don't know him, and I'm not going to obey him. Get out of here. And things get worse for the Hebrews. Everything's worse now. The Israelites turn on Moses. Moses then turns on God and asks God, why did you bring me here? Everything is worse now, God. Good job. And then God turns to Moses and says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh and what I will do to Egypt to let my people go. And now we see the unfolding of God's plan to redeem them. And then he gives them a list of names, which always encourages us. And he unleashes a snake fight in Egypt. So as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And seriously, if you are able, we're going to read a lot. And it's okay if you're not, but I hope you wore your standing shoes. Verse 2. In chapter 6, then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord, Yahweh. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites... I am the Lord Yahweh. I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you. As a possession, I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they didn't listen because of their broken spirit and hard labor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, if the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me? Since I am such a poor speaker. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. 
These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their family records. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, Shemai, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Utziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites, according to their family records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Itzhar, Korhah, and Nephag, and Zahiri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elisaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Amminadab, and sister Nashon. She bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abisaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of the daughters of Puthiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the Levite families by their clans. It was this Aaron and Moses whom the Lord told, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their military divisions. Moses and Aaron were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in order to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh, the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, since I'm such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? The Lord answered Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you, then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle. Tell Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us as we look at this unfolding redemption and battle that we see as you rescue and redeem people, people with broken hearts and and people in slavery. Would you rescue people today? Would you remind us of the redemption we have and the exodus we have and the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. So help us now, Lord. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. From the great theologian Mike Tyson. Iron Mike has some of the best quotes out there, and that's easily his most popular one. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And 
a, a reporter was asking Mike, hey, what's the origin of that quote? How did that come about? What made you think of that? And he said, you know, it was before a fight, and I'm, I almost did a Tyson impression, but I'm going to hold it back. He, he said, you know, before five, they're asking me, what do you think about your opponent? He's got more lateral movement than the last guy you face. He, he's going to make you dance a lot more. He's got other strategies that other guy has. And Mike just told him, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched. And then like a rat, they stop in fear and freeze. It's true in boxing. That's true in life, isn't it? You have plans. You have things you want to do and accomplish. But then something happens. And we can lock up fear, freeze. It's true in Egypt. Moses has a plan. I'm going to tell Pharaoh he's going to let God's people go. Pharaoh punches him in the mouth, and Moses locks up. He already talked to Pharaoh, and now he's like, well, I don't know. I'm not a great speaker. I don't know if I'm doing this stuff. Israel has a plan. We're going to be redeemed. We're going to be let go. Pharaoh pops them in the mouth. I'm not letting you go. And Moses and Israel both fold up like cheap lawn chairs together. But what does God do? God is not faced by what happens in round one. God has a plan, and the plan is that he will redeem his people, and he will redeem them for himself, just like you and I. We are redeemed for God. Look at what he says in verse 7 of chapter 6. What does God promise them? God tells Moses, tell them all of these great things. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to deliver you. Verse 7, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Salvation is so we can belong to the Lord. This is the heart of Christianity, that you would belong to God. And notice all these I wills when we read from verses 6 to 9. I am the Lord, know me, and I will bring you out. I will redeem you. Verse 7, I will take you. I will be your God. One you will. You will know. I am the Lord. Verse 8, I will bring you to the land. I will give it to you. I am the Lord. I, God is saying, you need to know this about salvation. It's what the prophet Jonah says. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is not ours. It's not something we can conjure up. It's not something we can accomplish. It's not something we can do. It's all by the power and grace of God, of a God that says, I will. Because so often in the Bible Belt, what what fills up our lives is things like, I'm trying. I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try to do this. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to get my life together. I'm trying to kick these habits. I'm trying to stop these addictions. But we need to say, rather, is what we need to hear as a God that says, I will. I will rescue you, verse 6. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Why these two words? Whenever you see like, these kinds of parallel things in the scriptures, you, you should go, okay, why is he saying rescue and redeem? Well, when do you need to be rescued? These are kind of the two aspects of salvation. Why do you need to be rescued? When you're in danger, when you're being hurt, you're trapped. Like those poor boys in Thailand, trapped in this cave that they can't get out of. And scuba divers are having to go in and through these little spaces, and they're carrying oxygen tanks for these boys, and they're tethering them to them. Four have been taken out so far today. Rescue. They can't get out on their own. This is what God says. When I will rescue you from Egypt, it's like you have no hope of getting out without me. Pharaoh's not going to become a nice Pharaoh all of a sudden and go, yeah, you know what? I should let you guys go. Never going to happen. 
You need the intervening grace of God to rescue you from the pit. And this is the story of our lives. Like, how come, how come you didn't become a drug dealer? How come you didn't stay one? Friends I grew up with did. How did you not fall into the same patterns of everyone else in your family? See, we all have family that we can look at and friends from our past and, and even our, our upbringings and previous sins and desires, and yet here we are now singing songs about a man from the Middle East that we've never seen with our eyes, holding an ancient book and listening to a guy explain this ancient book, and then you're going to eat a little scrap of bread and a little bit of juice to remind you of a bloody body crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Do you ever sit back and think, how did I get here? How come I'm not hung over right now? How come I'm not out playing golf right now? What brought me to this moment that I would be at an 1130 service and a little tin building listening to this little half Mexican guy talk about big things of God? How did this happen? Verse 6 is the answer. I will rescue you. God rescued you. God redeemed you. That's why you're here. And you, you know, you may be in a situation today that is so bleak. You don't know if there's a way that you're going to get out of it. You wonder if you'll ever be set free from this harsh treatment, from the addictions, from the struggles, from the sin patterns, and even from abuse. And there is a mercy of God in our culture right now, both in American culture and I think in church culture, where abuse is being talked about and people are feeling, sisters in Christ, are feeling the freedom and power to come forward and say, no more. And so sometimes you are in these horrible, rescue-needed situations, and I want to tell any sister in Christ, any woman at this church, that is, if, if you are being abused, you are not unrescuable. You can be rescued. God has ordained the government and the police for this reason. And a lot of churches have been really stupid and tried to handle it themselves. That is not what we're called to do. Moses had a staff to let the people go. The government has a sword, Romans 13, and Harris County has handcuffs. Call the police if you are being abused. Your church will support you and be there with you. Because God wants all of us to know what he says in verse 5. I hear the groanings of my people, and I remember my covenant. God says, I will take action. I will rescue you, and I will redeem you. That's also in verse 6. I will redeem. So what is, what's now, go from rescue, what is redemption? It's, think about those boys in the cave. They're brought out, rescued, and then they're redeemed by, here's an IV. Here's a hospital bed. Here's restoration. That's redemption, to be brought out and then made whole again. And God is doing all the redeeming. And we see again the heart of the gospel in verse 7. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. The goal of rescue, the goal of redemption is right here, that you would belong to God. 1 Peter 3.18 on the screen says this, For Christ also suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring you to God. How, how would you feel if, if, you, if you were married, you're married, and your spouse was asked, how do you, how do you like being married? And your spouse answered, oh, 
I love having a house. I, I, two incomes is great. Uh, I love having kids. I love all this stuff. Oh, and of course, I mean, I'm glad my spouse is there, of course. I mean, that's great. You wouldn't feel very loved. You'd feel used. And so often we talk about Christianity. Oh, you know why it's so great to be a Christian? You can be forgiven. You get new life. You get your shame lifted. You get set free from sin. I mean, oh, man. Oh, I mean, of course God is there, and it's great. God does not like to be of course. Our union together is the heart of the gospel as well, of him bringing us in to be his people, us bringing us to himself. Because in a healthy marriage, you love those things because you love your spouse. Like, I love being married to Natalie, not just being married. I love raising our kids together. I love having a home together, her being mine and mine being hers. And this is what God is saying. I'm going to save you, not just to show my power, not just so everybody can go, man, God's really powerful, but to bring you to be my people. You know, when I was in middle school, there was this kid that lived down the street, rich kid, uber rich kid, and he had every video game system imaginable. He had, every, he had all the hottest games for all those systems. So when the school bus drops me off, which house do you think I'm going to? My lame house? No. I'm going to his. I'm playing every game for hours on end, and I'm eating all of their fresh-stocked zebra cakes and oatmeal cream pies every day after school. But you know what? That kid was annoying. I couldn't stand being around that kid. I, we, I would not have called him my friend. I only used him for the video games. I think far too many churchgoers treat God like the annoying kid that has what they really want. He's got forgiveness. He's got heaven. So I'll put up with all that singing and Bible and communion and repentance. And yeah, 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 I'll do, uh, fine, I'll pick up a cross, whatever. But I really just want to go to heaven. Jesus is there, great, whatever. I just want the video games. Friends, that is not Christianity. That's pimping out Jesus just to be your own personal savior. But listen, Jesus went to the cross for this purpose, to bring us to God. Yes, he does forgive our sins. Yes, he does give us new life. Yes, he does lift our shame and our condemnation. But all of it comes in proximity and union with him himself. As Paul says, he gave, us to, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people who kind of like him. And for a people who kind of taught, no, a people for his own possession. You are redeemed to belong to God. Israel's brought out of Egypt to belong to God. And right now, listen, beloved, you, if you are in Christ, you belong to him. This moment, you are not some stray cat that he gives milk and cold cuts to. You are a prized and beloved possession to him. Can you imagine how valuable you must be knowing the cost he paid? Like, there are prized possessions in our house. I have a Charles Spurgeon, 19th century, you know, British preacher, one of his handwritten manuscripts, prized possession, love it. I have a James Harden bobblehead, prized possession. Think about you and what God paid to bring you to himself. It cost him himself. 
he gave himself to make you his own possession. What did it cost God to redeem the Israelites? He flexed. I'll do some plagues. I will show my power. And you guys, you're going to be set free. He didn't even have to break a sweat to let the Israelites out. But what did it cost Jesus to set us free? He sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane for you. Paying the price to make you his own possession. You are so loved by God. He wants you to know that. He wants you to know him. That's why he keeps saying, you will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord. The Israelites don't hear it. They hear Moses. Look, the Bible says now in verse 9, Moses went and told the Israelites. But what happened? They didn't hear it. They didn't listen to him, the Bible says. They hear, but they're not hearing. Why? Why don't we hear? Verse 9 says, they didn't listen because of their broken spirit. Sometimes it's a broken heart that keeps you from hearing the glory of God. Sometimes it's a broken spirit that keeps you from hearing the beauties and and glories of Christ. They heard Moses, but it's not sinking in. Is that you? You're struggling to believe, not because you're an atheist and not because you, you have a hard heart, but just because you have a heavy heart. As Christians, we need to understand the difference when we are around one another Sometimes people struggle to obey and, and struggle to believe, not because they have a close-fisted um, defiance to God, but because sometimes they just have a heavy heart. You know, God doesn't even rebuke their listening, their broken spirit. He doesn't stop. Moses tell them to snap out of it. He doesn't do that. Why? Because if you have a broken heart, here's what you need to know. If you have a broken spirit from struggles or sickness, loss, pain, and, and just grief, God is not in the heavenly places with his arms crossed, shaking his head in disapproval. Actually, he's with you. As Psalm 51 promises, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit, not faking it till you make it. And the psalmist David says, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God, So we think we have these broken spirits. God draws back. Instead, the Bible says, no, 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 God does not despise that. God draws towards you in your broken spirit. Because there in that broken spirit, there in that humbled heart, like Lawson read from Isaiah 61, Jesus says, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. There, Jesus says, that's what I want. I'm here for your broken heart. I'm here to redeem you. I'm here to rescue you. And that's exactly why he gives this genealogy. Doesn't this feel like a great place to have a genealogy? The people aren't believing, they're not responding, and God's plan, let's give them a list of names. How would you like that if you came into my office for counseling this week? I said, you know, I think would lift you up. Let's read a genealogy. I'm sure as we read the genealogy this morning, as you heard me accurately pronounce all of these names, I'm sure all of our collective souls, that we were just lifted together in the heavenly places. Of course, it doesn't happen all the time. We think a list of names like this are boring. 
to us in 21st century, hearing all these ancient names, that doesn't really pop off the page to us and want us and cause us to go to the mission fields. But here's why I think it should. Genealogies like this are gospel reminders. Anytime you see a genealogy, and especially one like this, in the midst of their unbelief, in the midst of their struggling, God gives them a list of names to say, remember I made a promise that someone will be born of Eve and someone will be born of Abraham. Someone will be born of Jacob that would set the people free from sin, Satan, and death. I haven't forgotten my plan. So here's my list of names. And he talked about clan leaders and military leaders and all these kinds of things. Why? What does God say next in chapter seven? He says, Pharaoh's not gonna listen, but guess what? I'm gonna stick my hand into Egypt and I will grab my military leaders and I will bring them out. God is saying, look, I've already picked out who's going to lead what in Israel. Y'all are getting out. And do you notice he lists three really important names? Begins in the tribe of Levi. Look at what he says in verse 20. Talks about Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and what? She bore him, Aaron and Moses. And look at what God says in verse 26. It was this Aaron and Moses. So God is encouraging them, reminding them, look, I am at work in space and in time. I have been at work in this for a long time, and don't you forget it. And then he mentions another name in verse 23. She bore him Nadab and Abihu. These guys show up later in Leviticus. The first priests, along with Aaron. So what's God doing? He's saying, look, I've already picked out who's going to set my people free. I've already picked out who's going to even lead you in worship, and the Levitical priests, it's happening. These genealogies are gospel reminders. And here's the other thing you need to know. Every time you see a genealogy, I think, I hope this message will stick with you for the rest of your life. Every time you see a genealogy, remind yourself of this. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's just not about you. You know, we read the scriptures and we... In American Christian culture, we see things that are promises to Israel and we make them promises to America. Not true. We are more Babylon than we are Israel. We want to grab all these verses that are about other promises and we go, oh, that's about us, that's about me, that's about me. We read our Bibles and think, what can I get out of it? What can I learn today? Uh, what, what can I apply? And sometimes those are good questions. But the better question we ask ourselves when we get into the scriptures is rather, who is God? What is God doing? What has God promised to those who will call on his name? What is God like? That is what the Bible is about. The Bible is not about you. And genealogies help us de-self-center our Bible reading and remind us of God's glory. And, And this genealogy reminds me of one other thing. That there is a list of names that precedes this one. There's a list of names in the heavenly places right now the Lamb's book of life, filled with the names of those who will be redeemed and rescued by the blood of Jesus of Nazareth. And while I'm not listed here in Exodus 6, and you're not listed in Exodus 6 in Matthew 1, there is a page right now in the heavenly places that has Jeffrey Allen Matters written on it, and it's written in ink that is older than the earth. And your name is there too, Lost in Flowers. Laura Fry, Tom Kimball, Rich Rector, Amy Beach. If you believe in Christ, 
you're not mentioned here, but your name is written in heaven. And that's a genealogy. That, that's, that's a family of God with the brothers and sisters of Christ where you can find instant and eternal encouragement. And God wants to remind you, I am redeeming you. I have your name written down. It's going to happen. And I have one more thing to show you about my power. And it's a snake fight. So next time you watch a snake fight, remember the Exodus. What happens? Look at 7.1. The Lord answers Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Meaning, when you go and speak to Pharaoh, it's not you alone that's going. It's me. My power and my authority. That when you stand up to him, it's like I am there. And the same thing happens to you too. This is not unique to Moses. When you are in your living room, and you're sharing the gospel with a neighbor, and you're telling them, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You are not just sharing your opinions about the afterlife. You are speaking in the very authority and power of Christ himself. That's why when Jesus says before he flies back up to the Father, all authority is mine. So go, make disciples, Teach them and know I am with you always. It's the same thing. So go. Share that truth with your kids knowing my power is with you. Share that truth with your Muslim Uber driver. My power is with you. Share that word and the power and authority of God really knowing you cannot lose. And that's what God shows them in the snake fight. So here it is, verse 8, chapter 7 the demonstration of why we should trust God's power. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when, when Pharaoh tells you perform a miracle, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh. Get this picture in your mind, a piece of wood thrown down, crackles on the ground, boom, snake. And Pharaoh's like, okay. Yahweh brings in his two messengers, Moses and Aaron, Call two of my magicians. Verse 11, but then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt. Now, these magicians, these are not like, oh, thumb disappearing, uh, dove gone. Don't think like kid magician performing at a party. Think of demonic power. Occult, that's exactly what the scriptures say. Occult practices, verse 11. So, Moses, so Pharaoh brings in his two guys. They throw staffs down, snakes. One verse two, you're a betting person, you're betting on Pharaoh, and you would lose. Because what happens? Verse 12, each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. So the snake fight happens, and what happens? It's not much of a fight at all. Aaron's snake and staff eats the other two. This is what theologians call a mic drop. I mean, imagine sitting there, watching it unfold, and here come these two scraggly Hebrews, and they throw their down. Two powerful Egyptians come in, throw theirs down. Boom, boom, boom. Done. You know the message it sends? You got nothing, Pharaoh. You have nothing on Yahweh. But it's even bigger than that. Do you remember part two of the miracle, the staff turned a serpent? What are they supposed to do? Release the snake? No, pick it back up. 
grab that snake by the tail, pop it back into a staff. So Aaron would have gone over, grabbed that snake by the tail, and said, I'm going to go and take my staff back. Oh, where are your staffs? Oh, they're in my hand now. You've lost your power, Pharaoh. The power of Egypt is now in my hand. The power to set the Hebrews free is now in God's hands. You've lost. He wins. And you can resist. We're going to go round after round. We're going to go plague after plague. But at the end, when the Hebrews are finally released and they walk through the Red Sea, what does the Bible say? As the Egyptians chase them and go after them and the Hebrews are out, what happens? The Red Sea swallows them up. Just like Aaron's staff swallowed up the other two. God is flexing his power to save his people. And the same thing happened to you. When you believed in Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 testifies, your sins were swallowed up in him. Your sins were swallowed up at the cross, swallowed up at the grave. And when accusations from Satan try to slither up, the way of Christ swallows them and says, no. Every time temptation tries to bring you down and rip you out of the Father's hands, the snake that's lifted up as a bronze serpent, Christ lifted up on a cross, swallows up those accusations and say, you will not win. Because 1 Corinthians 15 says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? It is gone because the serpent from the staff the cross of Christ, swallowing it and defeating Satan and the cross and resurrection. See, Jesus took the punch to the mouth and he did not give up. He did not pull himself down off the cross. Even as everyone mocked him, he says, I could call down a legion of angels right now and I could be ripped down off of this cross, but I will stay and yell it is finished because I will redeem my people and he will redeem you from all of your sins. He offers you new life. He offers you rescue. He offers you redemption. He offers you himself available to you today in the middle of your broken spirit. He offers you himself because he came to bind up the broken heart. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.